things that we have already talked about, and, and then you can just um, take them and keep them and be reminded of them, and so on and so forth. So the, the idea being uh, Christ-centeredness, or call it the Christ life, or as the title of my sermon is, the centrality of Christ. The centrality of Christ. And for us to understand and apprehend the scriptures, it is to understand that Jesus is the subject of the scriptures. Are you with me? It is not marriage. It is not finances. Although those are included in the scriptures. It is about Jesus Christ. We'll we'll get into some more detail in, in just a little bit. And the entire Bible finds its unity in Jesus Christ. Uh, often people speak about biblical principles. Uh, but as I often speak with my friend Don Lavelle and, and some others, it is not so much about the principles. The principles in themselves don't do that much for you. It is the principle who makes it all work. It is the principle about whom it is. So, it is not a book. Uh, it is not about the book. It is about whom the book is. Uh, so, some people, they just think that the Bible is, is, is the Lord. The Bible is not the Lord. The Bible speaks about the Lord. It is written in the Word of God about Him. It is like somebody saying, you know what? I, I don't need my father anymore. I have a book about my father. I just read the book. I forget about about my father. No, no, no. You need your father. So it is about the Lord. Yes. The Bible speaks about the Lord. So that makes the Bible very, very, very important. But it's just about Jesus Christ. Um, It is not about a good marriage. It's about whom the good marriage is about. Whom you are trying to portray with a good marriage. It is not about you getting along with your wife. It is about you walking with your wife in such a way that it is a testimony to the world about the love of Jesus for his church. It is about Jesus, Christ-centeredness. It is not about tithing, though tithing is important. It's about the one that you're honoring with your tithe. Jesus Christ. It is not about you or me. It is about Jesus. So, as I am challenging you, the flock that God has entrusted me with, I'm challenging you, it stands to reason, in my way of thinking, that I should be at least a decent example to you. Yes? And I pray to God that I am. Uh, I'm not fishing. Uh, because this is so important to me, because I tell, always tell people, Don't ask someone to do something that you cannot show them. If you cannot show them, don't ask them to do it. They need an example. They need for somebody to show them how to do it. That's why Paul says, be followers of me. That's why there's much instruction in the scriptures to to, to be followed. The very discipleship study that we're doing right now, walking as Jesus walked, Another word for as, walking as Jesus walked, is walking like 
Jesus walked. Or you might say, walking like Christ walked. In other words, Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is the whole thing. And this is what Paul is talking about when he's speaking in, uh, I want to say, uh, Philippians, the third chapter. I have it in my notes, but I can't look that fast. Verses 13 and 14. If you can put it on the screen, then I would like to just talk about it real quick. We've talked about Philippians, but I just want to uh, uh, show you what Paul is talking about over there so that, uh, the, the, you know, it ends the discussion, so to speak. <laughs> uh, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. The, the thing that he's talking about not having apprehended yet, it is the resurrection life. It is, he is not speaking about the resurrection, the future resurrection, that is guaranteed when you become a, a believer in Jesus Christ. So he's not saying, well, I haven't apprehended the future resurrection. He's speaking about the resurrection life, the life that portrays the power of the, resur- the resurrection in a believer. Remember in verse 10, he talked about that I may know by experience, an experiential knowledge, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That is what Paul is speaking of over here. He's speaking of that he has not come to a place yet where he has fully apprehended the life of the, and the power of the resurrection. So that is what he's speaking of over here. And he says, I see, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet. I have a ways to go. That's good news for us because it is a journey. Uh, but one thing I do, the, 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 the translation, you see the words I do are, are cursive. That means they are not in the original text. So he says, but one thing. But one thing. And the one thing that he's doing is forgetting those things that are behind me and reaching and stretching and forward to those things which are ahead. And then verse 14 says this, I press toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What he's speaking of here that he's pressing forward to is the goal, the price is Christ-likeness, the life and the power of the resurrection. That is ours, that is made available to us. And, and so he is saying, folks, Walk in it. You have so much given to you. You have so much made available to you. And you're walking like you have nothing. It's like somebody writing you a million dollar check and you live like a pauper. He's put it in the bank. The, 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 The power of the resurrection is used to live in and to walk by. And yet so many of us just walk in defeat, as if there was not even the power of the resurrection available to you. And he says, the price I'm looking for, the one thing I'm reaching for, stretching for, oh, the one thing, the price is Christ-likeness. The price that he's talking about here, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that is what he's talking about. So once again, it is a Christ-centered thing that Paul is talking about. The gospel of Jesus Christ without Jesus Christ is no gospel at all. It is about Jesus Christ. So, okay. So then, I want to give you uh, the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ in the scriptures. We're going to go fast because we, we, we don't have a lot of time and I like to sort of reach 
through this, uh, the, this whole outline and, 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 and deal with, it with a few things. So we'll talk about uh, Christ as the center of the Old and the New Testament. We're talking about two, two kingdoms. Like I said, you have heard most of this already, but I just want to package it for you. Uh, we're talking about the weapons of the kingdom, or the weapons of the two kingdoms, if you will, the armor of God, uh, Christ-centered prayer, Christ-centered house, Christ-centered people, in the way of, uh, it is too, too broad a subject, so we're going to talk mostly about communication and, and talking, a Christ-centered husband, uh, Christ-centered dealing with people, and Christ-centered dealing with difficulty. In Sunni school today, uh, Joe, who also did an excellent job teaching, uh, talked about uh, difficulty. Uh, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit also. So, um, Christ is the center of all that God does. Quickly, uh, the Holy Spirit, the Father, points always to the Son. With the Father, it is about the Son. And with the Holy Spirit, it is about the Son. It is the Holy Spirit's office and His job to glorify Jesus, to point to Jesus Christ. When Jesus was in the flesh over here, of course, He lived by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit always points back to Jesus. And it says there that He shall testify of Jesus Christ in John 15, 26. He shall testify of me. Uh, he shall glorify Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, as Jesus is speaking in John 16, 14, He says, He shall glorify me. It's a, it's a sort of a, a miracle of some sort that the Holy Spirit will not just glorify Jesus. He will use us to glorify Jesus. Wow. How, how, how huge is that? Uh, how huge is that? Uh, we find him to be the center of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people say that Christ in the Old Testament is concealed and in the New Testament revealed. He is not concealed at all in the Old Testament. If you read it with your eyes wide open and you listen with your ears wide open and you have ears to hear, he is all over the place in the Old Testament. You have to try to miss him to miss him. Otherwise, you, you can't. So, even in Genesis, he says, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. Who is us? And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and her seed shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Who is it speaking of over there? It's a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. That, and the enemy Satan will bruise his heel, but he will bruise his head. Speaking of Jesus. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we also find references back to the Old Testament. When the Ethiopian eunuch was saved, uh, Philip explained the Old Testament to him. That Jesus was there as he was reading out of Isaiah. And the, and the eunuch is asking, well, who is he talking about? How can I find out? How, how would I know? And Jesus, uh, 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 Philip says, hey, he's speaking about Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, he spoke to him about Jesus Christ from the, the passage in Isaiah. And then shortly after that, the eunuch was baptized. Christ, he is the center of the Old Testament. 
Even in the New Testament, they refer back to the Old Testament. And do you remember on the road to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus that Jesus was explaining to the two guys, the two disciples that were walking over there, and he was explaining, starting with Moses and the prophets, he explained about himself from the Old Testament. So, he is not, and then you have tons of types in the Old Testament. Types, or another name for types is shadows, uh, shadows of Jesus Christ. Shadows that say, this is a shadow of Jesus Christ. How is there a shadow? When the light shines on the real thing. And the real thing must be close by to create a shadow. So you have all kinds of shadows in the Old Testament that speak of Jesus. Aaron, Abel, Abraham, David, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua, Melchizedek, just to name a few, Moses, Noah, Samson, Solomon, the Passover, and everything that happens in the Passover speaks about Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, uh, if you have ever participated in a Seder, who's ever participated in a Seder or been taught on the Seder, okay, uh, you know that toward the end of the Seder, uh, the father of the house puts three, slices, three uh, layers of, of matzah in what they call the matzotash, uh, the little container that the matzah goes into. The top layer is a full piece of matzah. The middle layer is a broken piece of matzah that portrays the broken body of Jesus Christ. And in the bottom layer is a full piece of, of, of matzah. And then the, the, the broken piece of the matzah in the middle layer is hidden away. And then it is announced to the children, hey, whoever finds that broken piece that is hidden away will get a prize. Well, the, the significance of that is that the broken away piece that is hidden away is the resurrected Jesus Christ. Whoever finds him gets the prize of eternal life. So even in, the, even in the in the Passover meal, the Seder, there is the significance of Jesus Christ and the centrality of Jesus Christ. It is about Him. And so many of the Jews that participated with the Seder, they have no idea. Till they come to Jesus Christ, then all the veil is removed, and then they see clearly what this is about. So, and then of course the New Testament, I don't even have to use any examples over there, but in the New Testament, certainly... Uh, the centrality of Jesus Christ is, is obvious. From the very beginning, it is about Jesus Christ, and uh, he's all over the place. But, but there's some things that the New Testament speaks concerning Jesus. Lots of things, i just give you a few. Uh, so that I make my point of the centrality of Jesus Christ. He, there is a preeminence in Christ. That is to say that he, as Colossians 1.15 says, who is the, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And when we were going through Colossians, I, I brought up the idea that how can you be an image of something that is invisible? And how can you be the firstborn when you were not born? Well, you were born when you became a human, but that's not what it's talking about here. So it speaks about that the image of the invisible God, that is to say, my son Joshua had a series of, of sermons uh, uh, titled, Making Jesus Visible. Where, where is he? Anybody seen Jesus lately here? Okay, you see him in people. People make Jesus visible. 
So the, the series that he was teaching on was how can a believer make Jesus visible? And Jesus did that. He made the Father visible. And he was the firstborn, the, uh, oh, of course, I lost the, 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 the name of it. Uh, the prototokos, the prototokos is the Greek word for it. That means he is the first, it doesn't speak so much as to the firstborn in, in, in numerical order. It speaks about that he is the first in rank in all of the universe. The preeminence of Jesus Christ. Then we can go on and the Father has assigned him to be creator. Let me give you a verse. John 1.3 says, All things were made by him, Jesus, and what at him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 and 17. The two subsequent verses that I just mentioned to you that he made visible the invisible God. For by him... Jesus Christ, speaking of Jesus Christ, the text is, makes it very clear. So I'm not, I'm not uh, how you call it, improvising or supposing or presupposing on the text. It is right there that speaks about Jesus Christ. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. Oh, that's bad English, Paul. He is before all things. Shouldn't it be he was before all things? He is. Because he always was. So he is. He is always in the present time. We are either in the Future or in the past. But he is always in the present time. That's why Jesus could die for your sins 2,000 years ago. Well, you were not anywhere close on the horizon. Because it was for him in the present time. But even when we say present time, when we say present, time is in the future. When we say time, present is in the past. So we're never in the perfect present time. Only God is. So, he is before all things. He is and always will be. And, it says, by him, all things consist. All things consist. That is to say, he holds by him. God has given him the job of holding it all together. So, then we go to the two kingdoms that we have talked about. Uh, you, you remember that Paul says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it were, my servants would fight to deliver me out of the hands of the Jews. Now my kingdom is not from here. What does it mean? Otherwise my, my children, my servants would fight to set me free. That means with club and sword. But he says, I'm for, from a different kingdom that you don't know anything about till I reveal it to you. In my kingdom, we don't fight with sword and club, or with guns, or with whatever other things. We fight with the weapons of the kingdom of God. And my dear brothers and sisters, to my sad dismay, I must say to you how often Christians fight 
with the weapons of the world. The weapons of the world are designed by the enemy Satan. And what he means to happen with his weapons is devastation, death, and destruction. With the weapons of God, love, life, these type of things. Victory, these type of things. With the weapons of God. And then so often as Christians, we fight with the weapons of the world as if we were fighting for God. But we have only devastating consequences. It's a whole new set of weapons. Because the weapons for, of God are not for destruction. The weapons of God are for love, life, light. So, when you fight with the weapons of God, you are fighting for love in this brother. You're fighting for light in this brother. You're fighting for the kingdom of God to be expanded within that person. Because if you're a believer, you have the kingdom of God in you, boom, in its full potential. But it's not developed in its full potential yet. So God uses the, the church, the body of Christ, to develop the kingdom of God in each other. As well as developing the kingdom of God in organizations. It is first in the people, of course, but the people decide... Who is going to rule over that organization? Yes? So, if I belong to an organization called, let's say, the Koning Ministries, then as the leader, I get to decide who is going to rule in this organization. If it comes under Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. If it's under Satan, that's the world. Nothing good will happen. Ultimately, it's devastation and death. But the kingdom of God is about life and victory. So, I gave you my definition of, 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 of uh, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the invisible rule and reign of G King Jesus in every sphere of life that becomes visible when his children obey. I can say, okay, let's go take Doyle as an example. Doyle, the kingdom of God is in Doyle. Okay? Huh, kingdom of God. Yeah. <laughs> okay? It doesn't become visible till he shows the kingdom of God. So then people say, oh, he's a weirdo. Praise the Lord. Thank you for that compliment. Because... The things of the kingdom of God are co completely different than the, king, the things of the kingdom of the world. It's about like about a 180 degrees. If you have the things of the world, flip them 180 degrees, you're close to the kingdom of God. If you have the kingdom of God, flip them 180 degrees, you're close to the things of the world. So, I'm going to get off of that just a little bit. But, uh, so my dear brothers and sisters, if we are going to expand the kingdom of God, where Christ is king, we need to fight with the weapons of the kingdom. Glenn, how many years have I loved you, Glenn? At least, At least 30 years. The kingdom of God. When he was a little boy, I had no idea what I was doing. I just loved him. And when I invited him to church, there he is, he comes. Because there was a little bit of credibility. I didn't say, hey, who are you? What are you doing over here? Hey, Glenn, how you doing, man? 
Hey, I love the way you hit the ball. I love your topspin surf, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, love them. Do things that benefit and are beneficial to those that you love. So I, I, I got I to get off of this because you, you get the idea. Um, so you have the weapons. You have uh, the kingdom. It is important to know that when Jesus says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? That is to say, it is God's, the Father's desire that his kingdom come here on earth. But there's a problem. His will is not done here on earth. So, I'm I'm, I'm saying that wrong. It's not done enough here on earth. (laughs) So, we we see a little bit of the kingdom. In some, some places, the kingdom of God. Because even Christians, when they go to eat at a restaurant someplace, they have the worst name of anybody else. Pecky, demanding, poor tippers. What kingdom of God message is that? All right, we're in the, we are in the kingdom of God. Why don't you put me place over here? Hey, there's smokers over there, okay? And the, 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 the waiter is thinking, hey, the Christians are coming. You take that group, okay? So, we need to be constantly aware. And, and the, the thing, since we talk about restaurants anyways, uh, and this, I share this because a brother that I had lunch with, not, not lunch with, a meeting with uh, this week, um, he says, when you said this, it really struck me and convicted me of something, that I need to be more of a kingdom person. And I, 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 told, I told him, I say, you know, uh, when a, a waiter gives you poor service, if you are belly aching about the poor service, that means it is about you. You didn't get good service. Poor you. But if it's about the kingdom of God, you're looking for an opportunity for the kingdom so you don't lambast your waiter and you don't bad talk the guy and just go and give him two, two dimes or, or two quarters for a tip. You, you give him a decent tip because you're looking for an opportunity for the kingdom. When you come back in two weeks and you have the same waiter, you should be able to be credible when you share the kingdom of God with them. But no, we deserve it. We're paying for it. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ and his kingdom. That is... You know, sometimes you're asked to, to speak to a group and or you're asked to pray to a group. And I always tell the people, the only way I know how to pray is in the name of Jesus. If that's a problem for you, no hard feelings, I don't have to do it. But if you ask me to pray, I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. If that is a problem, don't let me do it. I, I, I don't mind. I'll come to your function, but... If you, if you ask me to pray, that's how I'm going to pray. So they know up front. I don't pull a, a surprise on them. I let them know. But uh, on, on occasion, you know, there is a group 
Uh, actually, this week, I got a, a call from the athletic director from Texas A&M Corpus Christi. In 1971, I just aged myself. <laughs> In 1971, the team that we had at the University of Corpus Christi, four, five or 600 students only, we were in Division One of the NCAA, and we ended up number five in the nation. And there is not a team that is, has ever come close to number five in the nation. People scramble. Big University of Texas, A&M College Station, they scramble to be number five in the nation, and then many times are not. So he called me and he says... Um, Kenny, I've decided that the 1971 team, we're going to induct them in the Hall of Honor at the school. Okay, fine, wonderful. No big deal. God is not impressed. Um, it, it's, sort, it's sort of nice. But then my mind goes, okay. So when I stand on the podium over there, when they are announcing the team, you know, Humphrey Jose and Jorge Andrew and Roberto Chavez and Ken Koning and Oscar Salas and Freddie Oporto and Mark Bull from France, uh, uh, and they... My, my mind is already going. What am I going to say? Am I going to be shy about Jesus? Jesus doesn't ask me to be shy. He didn't die on the cross and forgive me all my sins for me to be shy about him. Now, if they don't give me an opportunity to speak, hey, fine, no problem. If I get to speak, count on it, baby. So, anyways... Um, so, the, 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 the kingdom of God is coming to earth when the people on earth are doing his will like they are doing it in heaven. Sort of like. He's not saying that all of the earth has to do it. It'd be nice. But the kingdom comes where they are doing the will of God. Part of that, initially, is receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So, I better move on. Christ-centered prayer. So let me go quickly over this. Most of the time when we pray, we are asking something like this. Oh, Lord, please let me have a nice parking spot for Jesus' sake. I was not for Jesus' sake. <laughs> it was for your sake, okay? <laughs> or... You know, I, I love Eli, when Eli spoke to Samuel and he says, when you hear that voice again, say, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. But the Christians pray differently. They say, Lord, listen. Your servant is speaking. Oh, there's a whole flip-flop there, folks. There's a whole flip-flop of, of perspective. If that is all you're praying like, hey, check it out. Someday you need to pray and say, Lord, you speak, I'll listen, and I'll do. Um, Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, the Lord confronts him, and he says, Lord, that gives it away right there. Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you, what would you have me to do? I'm the servant. You tell me, I'll do it. Um, I'll get away from the, the, the prayer thing and, and, and move on a little bit. So, um, 
Then let's talk a little bit about the Christ-centered, Christ-centered, I'll, talk, I'll, I'll call it talking. I'll call it talking. Because communicating is not the right expression. Because people mean by communicating that they need to talk. But that is not the only way of communicating. When I don't talk to you, I'm communicating quite clearly that I don't want to talk to you. I'm communicating fine, but I'm not talking. And in talking, my dear brothers and sisters, and the scriptures have plenty to say about talking. Most of James, the third chapter, Proverbs has lots and lots and lots to say about how we should talk as righteous people, as Christ-centered people, that Christ should be the center of the way we talk and of whom we talk. So that, it it wants me to jump now to Ephesians 4.29 when it says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that's what is used to, that is good for, that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. That which is good to the use of edifying, the stuff that edifies other people. Like I said, you've heard it before. I'm just packaging the whole thing a little bit together here. Uh, that it might minister grace to the hearers. What does that mean to you? What it means to me is that my mouth, this thing here, should always be a minister of grace. When people hear you talk, wow, grace came out. Woo! Grace came out. Well, we don't even talk to our wives like that. Oh, uh, sorry, I stepped, I stepped on, a, on, a, sub, on a, a funny subject over here, sensitive subject. It got all of a sudden really quiet. I said, ooh, oh, maybe I lost something or whatever. Uh, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the way we should talk to one another. So the way I should talk to Michelle. The way I should talk to Keith. The way I should talk to Kenny. Never is it acceptable. I'll say it nicer. Never is it acceptable that we not talk to each other like that. Never acceptable. Hey, hey, you, you, you can make a mistake and you'll be forgiven, but it's not acceptable. It is not acceptable. And we talk to each other as if, sometimes, not, not, thank God, not so, not so in this church, but I, I hear Christians talk to each other. Mean. Mean. And it's almost extra mean because you know they're Christians and you're not expecting that from them. Boom. You know, it's like somebody gives you a punch without expecting it. It's like tw- twice the punch. <laughs> oh, gosh, I was expecting it. Uh, so, brothers and sisters, let your speech be full of grace. Full of grace. Hey, I give you permission. And I mean it seriously. If I ever speak to you ungraciously, oh, don't slap me. Okay, okay. Because see, if you slap me, I have to turn the other cheek so that you slap me twice. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, just, just, just point it out to me, okay? <laughs> I, 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 it is unacceptable 
Unacceptable. Hey, and if you, if you find yourself in the flesh a little bit, hey, look, I have an open door, or a door over here. Go in the closet, spend some time with the Lord, come out, and be gracious in your speech. It's just that simple, my brothers and sisters. And it, 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 it is a broad spectrum about this talking, this speech thing. All right, let's see here. Okay, we're doing pretty good. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the Christ-centered husband. Don't you leave, husbands. <laughs> Somebody says, oh, I've got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> uh, I was going to tell you uh, something that happened for real, but it's funny, but I, I, I won't. It's <laughs> for, for, for fear, it's an old joke, but... Um, I have wondered for years why God made the husband the head of the home. You've heard this already before. I, I know it. I'm telling you, I'm packaging just in one package for you today. Um, but I never asked him. One day I asked him. Say, Lord, why is the husband the head of the home? Because it seems to me, it, with my limited experience, that a woman is more inherent a wife than a man is inherent a husband. That's just my experience. I mean, it, it may be wrong because it's limited. The experiences that you have may be vast, and you might have experienced the opposite. But, but this was my experience, so this is what I asked the Lord. And the, the, the answer surprised me both in speed and in content because I had never heard it before. And the Lord said to me, I have made the husband the head of the home, not because he is so fantastic or so special, but because I have given him a unique perspective because he is a wife and a husband at the same time. He belongs to me as the bride of Christ. He is part of the bride of Christ. So to me, Jesus Christ, he is a wife. And to his wife, he is a husband. So as the wife of Christ, my question then became, what can he expect from his bridegroom, Jesus Christ? So I, tell, I may as well tell the rest of the story so it makes a little bit more sense to you. I was in Africa, and I, I told the man, I, I was t meeting with the man that night. The pastor asked me, talk about some man things. One of them is, uh, is uh, being a husband. And I say to the man, I say, there's 10,000 items, but just let us write 10 or 12. Let's write them down, 10 or 12. What you, as the bride of Christ, can expect from your bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And there they came. What do they say? What can you expect? Give me a few. Easy. Love, understanding, patience, security, protection, blah, 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 blah. 10,000 of them. And I read back the 12 that he gave me, and I say, this is what you can expect from your bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So can your wife expect it from you? Ooh, la, la. Poof, dead silence. And then they smiled. And they said, Pastor, with the help 
of God, we can do this. You will need the help of God, and He has committed Himself to you. He has a stake in it, because He wants on the face of the earth a witness of the love of Jesus Christ for His church. That's why He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The way you walk with your wife, people should take a gasp. Wow. Look how he walks with his wife. Look the kindness. Look the gentleness. She slept up a little bit and said something ugly, but he was nice and gentle. He didn't, never mind. So, out of that whole package, I shared this last week with the Sunday school class. Uh, out of the whole package, there is 10,000 of them, but I'm going to just choose one that I told to a, a, a gentleman that uh, about a month or a month and a half ago or so, I, I married, I, I did the, the wedding for them. And I told him, Michael, you must protect your wife. You must protect your wife physically. But that's a no-brainer. Anybody will take a shot, unless you're on crack, you'll take a shot for your wife if somebody wants to shoot your wife. If you don't do that, hey, forget it. But then you'll be a hero and blah, 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 blah. But, but you, Michael, you must protect your wife emotionally and mentally. And you must protect her spiritually. Michael, if you fail in that, you will be forgiven. But you cannot be slack. You cannot have an easy attitude concerning your wife and her protection. In every way. One couple, I married them over here. And during the wedding, standing there and I talked a little forcefully. He was a big athlete. Taller than, and not stronger because I'm not strong. So, but he, well, he was strong and I'm not strong. But he, big athlete like this. And when I told him about your responsibility towards your wife and your privilege that God has given you to be a husband to her, he said, oh, pastor, I almost started crying. <laughs> Sorry, I was too, a little bit intense, but I feel strong about this. Because, brothers and sisters, as husbands, my wives also, but as, as husbands, we need to walk with our wives such that people take note. Wow. That weird. That even married for 40 years and he's still holding hands? And he still opens the door for her? I mean, if you don't open the door for your wife, I'm not, I'm not finding you guilty. No problem. It works for you. It's fine. But, I mean, when you see somebody doing it, you, you, take, you take note. You mean he pulls still the chair for her? He's still gentle with her? He's still kind? He, he speaks nice words? He doesn't yell and scream at her? Or is impatient with her? Or puts the blame on her? Yeah, the reason why we're late is because my wife couldn't get her act together. That should be so foreign to you, like light is from darkness. To blame your wife, what kind of a cowardice is that? 
Anyways, Christ-centered husbands, because Christ is the center of their lives, this is what they see, this is the perspective that they have, and this is how they treat their wives. And this is how they treat their sisters in Christ. One more thing about husbands, about, about protection. The safest place on the face of the earth for your wife should be in your arms. Amen. And my dear brothers and sisters, many times it isn't. This is not a husband and wife seminar here, but so uh, let's, let's move along. Um, I'm, 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 I'm trying to figure, try to figure out where, where, Lord, where you have me to go in just a few minutes that, that are left. Um, let me just say this. There's a slew of things. I'll say a couple of things. They're short. Uh, you remember a beautiful Hispanic young woman that sits here with her son? Her name is Lorena. I've known Lorena since she's 11 years old. And when we had a lunch one time, she came and she put her arm around me. And she says, Pastor, your smile makes me so happy. <coughs> no pat on the back or anything like that. But it blesses you when somebody says that to you, yes. You would be blessed too. Somebody says to you, hey, your words really make me happy. Your smile really makes me happy. And... I was blessed by that. But me, I'm a ponderer. So I go home and in my quiet time, I sit there and I look out of the window and I look at the trees over there and I hear the birds carrying on. And I say, Lord, how amazing is it that you can minister something beautiful to a sister, to someone else, just with a smile? What kind of effort is that? Just with a smile. Just, just show your teeth to somebody. And they're blessed by it. So, Lord, it must be easy to bless people. It must be easy to bless people. So, um, uh, I'm not, if you're not a smiley person, I, I, I'm not finding fault with you. I'm just saying, it is easier than we think to bless people. Amen. It is easier than we think to bless people. And find opportunity to share because they'll ask you questions. And the last thing <clears throat> in the book of Acts, it speaks about Paul and company that they were turning the world upside down. That's what I want to do. Because I've discovered that when you turn something that is upside down, upside down, it's right side up. This is what God wants us to do. Turn the world right side up. The Lord bless you. I had a few more things on the deal, but it's, it's enough. It's enough. Let us stand.